In this episode, I talk to Lynn Evans about prayer practice for agnostics. The topics we cover are whether deities are out there in the universe or whether they're archetypal forms of our own psyche, the difference between the law of attraction and prayer, the similarities and differences between meditation and prayer, Christian contemplative prayer practice, the meaning crisis of modernity, the shortcomings of the Neo-Advaita teachings in relation to prayer, and how to traverse periods when we feel we have no connection with our muse. Lynn Evans is a lifelong mystic and spiritual practitioner whose life's work has been to deeply explore the nature of being, awareness and transformation, always through the lens of direct and embodied human experience. Welcome Lynn Evans again, conversation number two on um, the uh, Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast and uh, Body, Heart, Mind, Spirit YouTube channel. Thank you for having me here. Very nice to see you again. Uh, so we are going to talk today about post-conventional prayer and I suppose the, the sub title to that would be how to pray when you no longer believe in an old wise man with a white beard that lives in the sky um and the reason why i i think this is an important conversation to have is i feel that in in our uh western culture in england we're both from england and we grew up with the christianity of uh of our land and when i was young i never quite took to this relationship with god or jesus um i think partly because something about it felt a little bit arrested in a past era it didn't really apply to my life as a a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s in in England um and it was you know god was the father a bit like a kind of cosmic daddy who would punish people if they behave badly or be nice to them if they did things that were good and it it kind of seemed like you know all the kind of some of the worst aspects of um our parents were being projected up into like the into the cosmos and you're supposed to have a relationship with this character cosmic character which made you feel quite on edge and uneasy a lot of the time and it it just I wasn't sold um so then I feel like never quite developed that properly as a young person And, and and I feel that our culture has not quite worked consciously with this question uh, and it's created some kind of weird things that we're living through now so um you know just sort of setting the context for this conversation um when when um sort of historical epochs unfold quite often the the deities of that previous era get subsumed and integrated into the the new religion or the new worldview and quite often they become diminutive um, so I was thinking of the 
the uh, my pronunciation is probably not going to be great, but the Tuatha de Delan, who were the fair folk in the Celtic um, spiritual tradition, and they were very powerful deities, um, and they weren't small; <laughs> they were kind of normal size. Um, and then when Christianity came along, kind of wanted to bring in all of the the, the Christian deities and you know, made the the fair the, the fair folk into fairies, these tiny little sweet things that weren't a little bit mischievous, but not really that powerful. And I kind of feel like something's happened where modernity um, subsumed the and and integrated these deities of traditionalism and turned them into these small things that were mere figments of our imagination or something. Mm-hmm. And then there's been this revival probably with with postmodernism and Jung and uh, those kind of characters where uh, the, the, the deities have become kind of archetypes of our own deep psyche. And whether deities exist inside us or they're outside of us, you know, that's an interesting question that we can explore. Um, and perhaps it's not even really the most important point to consider. Um, so the last thing to say is that I think because modernity has has kind of underestimated the power of the mythological forces inside the human psyche, there, there was this this saying, God is dead. Um, and But God didn't die. And you know, as we know with psychology, if you don't bring something into consciousness it doesn't disappear it just buries down into your 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 deep subconscious and still acts in your life without you knowing about it and so i think the religious impulse has been pushed into sort of fundamentalist ideologies that have emerged since in in the modern uh, era um whether that's Marxism, capitalism, scientism, some of the social justice things that are going on and conspiracy theories. Um, and yeah, I think you could make the argument that World War II was a kind of massive eruption of some of these mythological forces inside our psyches that wreaked enormous havoc all over the world. Um, so I think uh, religious the religious impulse the um desire to have a relationship with divinity uh, none of that's gone away despite what modernity said um so i think it's that's why i feel it's a really important conversation to have um because we need to learn to work consciously with these parts of our psyche or the universe or whatever to be a more mature culture and society so that's the kind of context within which I was uh, wanting to have this conversation. Um, yeah. and, so. and, and important from a from the personal individual perspective as well, because of course we have all of this alive in us as we live this life that's more mysterious than we can ever imagine. And you know, I think at our core we have this yearning for the mystical and, and the spiritual, and you know, we we need to find a way to evolve that so it's not uh, so it doesn't become silly or immature or you know something to be um disrespected and to be able to evolve it into the into the fullness of its 
bloom in a way that fits easily with our modern lives and responsibilities. So you you have told me that you pray on a daily basis. Every day. Yeah. So what? How? How has that changed? I mean, what's different about the pray? Did you pray when you were young, too? Yeah. Okay. I did. Um, so how's that changed over your life? Well, it's, it's changed really radically, actually, from the beginning. So I think prayer has has always been about a kind of um, it's always been about connection. Um, but the things that are sort of associated with that have really changed over time. So when I was a child, I was I was brought up as a Roman Catholic. Uh, my mum wasn't a Catholic. She was actually a, a Protestant. My uh, my dad's family were Irish Catholics and very sort of firm in their faith from what I can remember and were very insistent that I should go to a, a Catholic school. And I think my my mum's my mum not being a Catholic must have uh, been recognised there because I remember as a, a young child, a boy in the school asking me if my mum was a Protestant. And I didn't know what that meant, and but but that that memory just sort of uh, stayed with me. So maybe there was a, a sort of context of being a bit of an outsider in a way from the from religion, even at that uh, even at that time. But I was I was brought up in a, a going to church. My mum used to take me along to church. I'd go to Sunday school, um, and the, in a, a Catholic school. I'm, I'm not sure whether you're a, a, were brought up a, a Catholic, Ralph. But no, no, it was a protestant school yeah yeah so so we were actually we were taught religion pretty earnestly as part of the curriculum at senior school you know we were learning the books of the bible it was uh, it was pretty um serious stuff but you know what occurred to me even then as a young child was that the people who were teaching religion didn't really understand religion <laughs> <laughs> and they, they really had no sort of sense of the of the mystical esoteric universal heart of, of what they were teaching and it was very much a sort of an enforced story or a, a morality uh, riddled with politics so I remember one day uh, we were asked to draw uh, Jesus uh, returning to earth and I drew, drew him in cords <laughs> <laughs> That's really uh, called out for that <laughs> for my for my blasphemy. Uh, probably today we we might accept that it was, it's blasphemous to uh, suggest that he might wear cords <laughs> when he came if he came back, depending on your fashion sense. So then I was um, so at that time I would uh, pray, but that uh, it was part of a sort of routine. And as I got, um, I, and I, I felt that sense of connection and protection and the person that the person that I was praying to uh, was Jesus, the, the, uh, the symbol of the faith that I was uh, being raised in. And I, I feel like I had a, a quite a personal sense of connection to Jesus. I felt like I knew him. I felt like he knew um, who I was, even though the sort of the, the religious context around that was in in some ways uncomfortable and, and I feel like I never really lost that uh, that that sense of connection although the relationship and the context has changed over time so as I as I grew up with prayer 
I think that um, a couple of things came up as being connected to it, and I, I still think they may be connected. So the first is that when I was young, I used to use prayer as a kind of conscious intent. So using prayer as a way to uh, alter my universe in some way. Um, and there were, there were lots of um, little examples of this that were really uh, significant at the time. So, um, you know, I used to, um, I, could, I could get on a, a bus. So needing to get a bus somewhere, I remember getting a bus for my A-level exams and I didn't have the money to get on the bus, <laughs> but I needed to get there for my exam. Um, and praying, praying that I would get there. And when I stepped on the bus, I happened to know the bus driver and he let me ride the bus that morning for free. Or needing to get a train across the, uh, the river to, uh, to, to Liverpool and needing an extra 40p for that journey. Um, and there, there was a, 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 um, a, a monastery or a, a nunnery um, in, uh, in Birkenhead where I live. And two nuns came out and dropped 40 pence on the pavement and they stopped to look for it and they, and they didn't find it. <laughs> and then as they sort of shuffled on, I picked up the, I picked up the 40p. <laughs> so lots of, you know, really in some ways mundane examples, but learning uh, through prayer to, to use my conscious intent to affect a change that I felt that I needed to see. Uh, in my world and as I sort of as I matured in that practice and, and my understanding I guess two things um, happened one that I started to feel that that was a very inappropriate use uh, of, of conscious intent and I and for years um, I never used that uh, that gift or ability because I could never find a situation where I felt it was appropriate actually to try and consciously manipulate a, a change. But the other, um, starting to, uh, to recognize actually that there, that there is a difference between using conscious intent and prayer. So with, with conscious intent, you know, you're, um, you're focusing on something that you want to manifest or make real without wanting to get too new agey about it, because I don't, <laughs> I really don't feel like I sit in the, in the new age. Yeah, it's, 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 it, it makes me think of uh, the secret the and secret, the, yeah. the, the law I, of attraction and all that stuff. Which that's not where I am. Yeah, although I have, you know, without any disrespect for pe to to people who uh, who enjoy that uh, kind of adventure into uh, into consciousness. But 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 what I realised actually well, just before we move on, I mean, me too. I think there's with all of these things, there's there's a truth there and I think some of the people with the law of attraction have taken that piece of the truth and just run a mile with it you know trying yes. to trying to make it work uh, harder than it actually can you know yeah uh, so, I mean I, I like you I mean I I think it's 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 a real thing um but uh, you know, writing yourself a check for a million pounds and just leaving it on the wall. Um, you know, I think that's gone a bit too far. Yeah, I, I think that's where I am with it as well. It's, it's a truth that I discovered uh, quite early on and quite naturally um, discovered, but I feel quite uncomfortable when I see 
you know, these new age sort of laws of abundance and the secret and this, you know, being offered out in, in the way that uh, that it is, because, you know, I, I don't feel really that that's what it's about. And I don't think that it's it's well, um, I don't think that it's, it's well understood <laughs> in that particular um, presentation. So the, so the first thing around that is that, that I realized that prayer actually isn't about conscious intent, it's actually about surrender. And, and so in that way, prayer sort of changed form for me and became sort of separate from that use of intent uh, to manifest change. The, the other thing that I recognize now about prayer is that it's a form of, uh, of relationship with divinity. So it's not about me trying to use my power or intent actually to do anything. It's about me um, appealing, um, opening, um, inviting divine grace into my life, but also more more sort of permeable uh, than that so there's a there's a, a sort of a, a humbleness now in it rather than a sort of there's no sense of, of prayer being a, a a powerful thing it is a powerful thing but not in the exertion of power more in a, a, a humble a surrender and the exception the acceptance of uh, an opening to grace in a way that that realigns my human life to the uh, to the to the divine in a way that feels uh, that, that does feel protecting but also uh, also feels vulnerable and uh, and humble and accepting of you know this mystery that uh, that that we're that we're living the other thing that I felt is quite um, connected to prayer but I've come to appreciate the differences um, is is practice so again you know we could and these things don't really these differences don't really matter it's just kind of fun to think about how they uh, how these different things fit together intent and spiritual practice and, and prayer but you know I, I've spent many years um doing various spiritual practices at the heart of which has always been meditation. And again, I, I feel that um, you know, there, are, there are overlaps between prayer and meditation, but that in other ways, you know, those two things are, are quite standalone. And there'll be times in life where my uh, primary practice is, uh, is meditation um, or as some kind of energy work. Uh, and there are times when my practice really entirely is uh, is prayer, and again that you know those things feel like they're like they're sort of distinct around the edges. Although in the in the contemplative Christian movement, which is something that I'm very um, that I'm exploring quite deeply, they have a practice called centering prayer. Uh, which is which is very similar to a, a spiritual practice. It's almost like a, an upside down mantra. So um, you're you're going into meditation, but as you um, as you find your thoughts um, 
distracted or um or moving away you use a phrase whatever sort of phrase is meaningful for you uh, i use come lord and bring the attention back to the heart and when you when you realize that you've sort of lost that connection with the with the sacred word in the heart uh, then again you use the the phrase to, to bring yourself back into the heart so there are there are sort of there are, are, are overlaps uh, and in the in the end i think that there are ways in which just ordinary life has become a prayer that the the boundaries between these things ultimately sort of collapse and resolve themselves and, and my my first experience of that was in around 2004 in my head it's 2004 it could, it could have been a bit later than that when I was out on uh, on retreat with a spiritual community called waking down in mutuality and I had a very um profound sort of landing in my body where I felt like my energy had been caught really far away and it sort of poured back um, into my body uh, and I had a kind of what I can only really describe as a sort of religious experience where I sort of felt that everything was sort of lit up and um, I could I could really sort of see that the divinity of every sort of face in, in the room. And, I, and after that experience, I took my altar down that I had in my, um, in my room because I really felt that I couldn't tolerate any symbols of a barrier between myself and God or between myself and the, and the divine. And, and, and more recently, as I've come to rest in a, in a slightly different a stage of consciousness where it feels like I'm inhabiting the, the totality of my being you know that that is and, and my environment you know that's absolutely infused with uh with prayer and sort of Christian language having spent a long time rejecting that because I didn't feel like it fitted with a serious spiritual practice you know it, it's really sort of found a new way to uh to to come alive in me in a way that really makes life uh, feel in a very real sense like it is a, a prayer what to going back to the, the beginning of uh, what you were saying there was this transition from prayer being a little bit like being a a magician and yeah you sort of command god or the goddess to do stuff for you and they oblige and 40p falls out of the sky um and that you know that's of course that's the way a child is going to look at the world those are the most important what's that what you know religion and spirituality one way to define it is what is of ultimate concern to you and when you're a child it's like the most pressing issue is getting 40p to get on the bus you know there's nothing more important than it and of course it makes sense um, and there's a, I suppose, is it, when you're a child, there's a sort of egocentrism that's natural too. And of course, you know, the, the world revolves around you and, and what you want. Um, and then you're describing this transition into prayer on the, on the term, the, 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 the own terms of the God or goddess or deity. Um, 
and that links up with this centering prayer another one of the mantras of centering prayer which i've come across through father thomas keating is consent to the presence of god um and you know how that links in with meditation practice is for me my meditation practice went through a similar kind of transitions what you're describing where kind of started off where i was trying to create states of consciousness and then a shift happened about 10 years into my practice of where i wasn't i stopped trying to make stuff happen and started to fo- to notice what already was the case um so you know consenting to the presence of of god is is very much in 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 line with that yeah so just before i move on is there anything that that makes you that brings up anything for you Mm, i love that image of the magician which is the what the one the first one of the first cards in the tarot deck as well which of course tells the story of uh of exactly what we've been describing of the uh the, the spiritual evolution of uh man from the from the the, uh, the creator to that more sort of esoteric exta- expanded appreciation of our uh, of our place in the universe, uh, it's quite interesting to um, to think about as well. You know the the relationship with a particular deity because I I think that's shifted over time as well. Although I do um, pray sometimes to uh, to Jesus or call upon the grace of a particular deity or or form i think more often now i'm praying uh, really to uh, to divinity itself and not in any um, particular form so praying in a way really that's uh, connecting with the universe and it's uh, in it's uh, in its fullest uh, possible um, sense praying to the to the to the mystery, uh, to the Christ energy, to the heart of, uh, of being. I don't think um, necessarily we need to, to keep um, always relationship to a particular form, but I, I don't think it's wrong to do that either. And it, you know, th- th- it can be extremely enriching. You know, saying a rosary, uh, for example, and you know that can uh, that can come alive in you as well in uh, in really uh, beautiful ways you've got the mystery and that's that slots in very much with this you know there's there's a uh, with prayer and meditation meditation okay well just before i say that you were you were saying that you were drawing distinction between meditation practice and prayer practice and um for the last year I've um, started cycling uh, meditation, different meditation practices on a daily basis. So I meditate every day. Um, one, so one day I'll be focusing on um, formless consciousness. Um, you know, I think that I love when I came across um, Hinduism and uh, classical tantra and that kind of thing. The fact that Shiva, one of the gods in, in, in that tradition, is consciousness. So consciousness itself is a god. That, for me, was 
it was a wow moment because I when I growing up with the Christianity I grew up with nobody had ever talked about anything like that but now I know that there is this esoteric mystical tradition in Christianity um but you know with Meister Eckhart and um uh, all of these um Christian mystics that that are out there and these amazing uh, works like the cloud of unknowing and um but I didn't know anything about that when I was younger um they don't teach that in Catholic schools. No. <laughs> you know, I bet some of the teachers knew about that stuff, but they couldn't really talk about it in class. Maybe. Um, so, yeah, so that's, you know, day day one would be would be that. It's kind of uh, in Buddhism, it would be an, uh, an emptiness meditation, meditation without an object, I amness, you know, self-inquiry in the Ramana Maharshi style, that kind of thing. Then the next day, I do, a, so that would be what we, you might call a first person perspective practice, where there is zero separation between you and Shiva, God, consciousness, the mystery of consciousness. Um, then the next day, I do a second person perspective practice, where it's about relationship. So relationship to... Um, the deity and for the last year i felt drawn to work with um goddess Be again to do with my upbringing being very much about god the father you know so i've been working with mother nature um and uh sort of feminine deity types some non-traditional forms so with that i let my imagination run and and I and I don't try and um, curtail it at all, or say you know, so. I'm not trying to do. Well, like it is it is a kind of a meditation practice because I'm I am focused. My all my attention is focused on the, this feeling of relationship with a with a with an other, an, an, another intelligence. Um, and uh, I've been particularly drawn to this this female thing and. You know, that that could take on quite a lot of forms it's always different every day and and that's part of the so the the meditation on consciousness almost is the same every day but every time i do it it's that's the, the sort of one of the shocking and amazing things about it is the consistency of our own awareness is mind-blowing but then um you know I, I liked the kind of vivid um polarity between that practice and this kind of second person one where i'm you know it's much more kind of shamanic sometimes you know fun things will happen like um little pixies will come into my body and fly up and down my spinal column kind of cleaning it out and sometimes having orgasms on the way up i mean you know it's so you can get you know i, I just i just let it go wherever it wants to go and so sometimes there's a kind of healing aspect to it Sometimes I feel like I want to be in relationship with my divine mother. I feel like I want that soothing energy. But I'm always a bit cautious about creating just a cosmic mummy and daddy. Because, you know, my parents are, uh, are, are elderly now. My mum's got Alzheimer's <clears throat> and stuff. So my parents are not who they were, you know. And so th there's kind of a drive inside us to want to have some parents somewhere to look after us and you know we can kind of project that out there into the you know uh the world and i 
not sure that's the, the best way to go with this kind of thing. Um, you know, thinking on, in the psychological terms. And then the, the, on day three, the next day, I practice what you might call in Zen Shikantaza, um, which is just sitting as a, it's more of a non-dual meditation practice where I sit as the coincidence of emptiness and form of God and goddess in I mean one I love the these tantric images from Tibetan Buddhism and the uh, for example where you have a god and goddess or bodhisattva two bodhisattvas female and male sort of in a medit med in meditation but also having sex at the same time and that meditation practice really feels like that there's this really delicious relationship between god and goddess and emptiness and form consciousness and matter and you know they're not separate they're never separate you know um but they are dis yet distinct and it's just endlessly fascinating um so i kind of rotate those just round and round and round i have been doing for about a year um and one of the reasons why i got into that which is one of the reasons why you and i met um in the first place was i was getting a bit annoyed with the advisor um non-dual <clears throat> teachings that say you know from the 1980s a lot of it spawned out of papaji uh in india and it's become very very popular in the last 10 to 20 years um this advisor non-dual spirituality where if we were to look at this first person second person and third person perspectives that i think makes sense to me that they are three fundamental domains of life the human psyche or whatever and in a way you can't really reduce it further than you you can reduce it into a, a non-conceptual unity but i feel that you want to be doing both those there's a, there's some kind of harmony between the unity perspective and then this multiplicity and not to so i was feeling that the advaita teachers were collapsing these three perspectives into this single perspective and that was it and I, one of the things that turned me off about that is one is it becomes very bland it's a kind of mono mono perspectival it's a it's a um it's not 3d technicolor you know I, I feel i love the richness of life and there's this kind of bland vanilla kind of thing that get that, that happens and the other thing is there's a really real danger of narcissism uh just colonizing your life and spiritual practice that if there is nothing outside of you that is greater than you because in in that uh, famous uh, statement from uh, Vedanta Hinduism, you are that. You are the day, everything you've ever wanted and longed for and all of that. If there's nothing outside of yourself that's greater than you, alarm bells start going off me because, you know, narcissism is a real danger. And not that narcissism's, it's just, you know, it's an unpleasant thing, but it's also arrests your 
development i think in terms of spiritual practice because all of a sudden there's nowhere to go and it's 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 again it's one of these things that it's true it's a truth but it's people taking it so far and trying to make that kernel of truth do far more work than it than it should do um so that was quite a long <laughs> long long uh, monologue there um yeah what one of the things that really turns me off about the sort of neo um, Advaita non-duality is, you know, it feels to me like a sort of mental tyranny. Um, it, it feels quite, um, I wouldn't, maybe wouldn't go as far as to say uh, violent, but it's not really inviting one to make their natural exploration from the perspective of their experience and you know I've I've, uh, I've tried to cultivate greater tolerance of uh, <laughs> of different perspectives on, the, on this kind of stuff and you know I, I think they all have their own um, validity but certainly that's not my orientation um, whatsoever excuse me whatsoever and I it, it I feel sort of a degree of pain when I, I see people on um, in spiritual communities and uh, forums just being really shut down by in their questioning by what feels like the most sort of um, shallow, um, arbitrary sort of, you know, who's asking the question type of you know, uh, responses to things that really sort of you know, close people down and close down their, their exploration. And, you know, I, I, um, I recognize that, that there is no um, separation, that being is only, you know, I know that unshakably and I live that reality, but I also, you know, take courage to step into the paradox of simultaneously living the diversity and multiplicity and messiness of our human lives, whilst at the same time uh, understanding that, that that is all that is the display of unity. And I loved your um, description of the three different um, lenses on your meditation. You know, beautiful uh, descriptions of the. You know the the um, the absolute nature of uh, of unchanging um, sort of fabric of reality, the the male um, god uh, element with the the wildness of the uh, of the divine manifesting uh, feminine um, in all of its. Uh, of its, of its experiential um, forms and the, and the things that it has to offer and then of, uh, the, of that the Shiva and Shakti in the, mm -hmm. in the marriage of heaven and earth you know the, the, the unity with one another as one another but also uh, with one another one resting in the other you know it's not just that the the manifest is, a, is appearing from and and resting in the absolute but the absolute also appearing from and, and manifesting in the uh in in the uh in in the in the manifest i, do, I don't, I don't, I don't want to really hold with the sort of the 
primacy of uh, consciousness perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that, that these things are, are sort of co, uh, co-emergent is the, the word that my teacher Samuel Bonder uh, uses to, to, to sort of describe this simultaneity of, uh, of consciousness and matter. Um, one thing I, I do want to, uh, you know, mention is that in the classical tantra tradition uh, from India, the they they will in one breath be talking about the uh, consciousness as as a um, a masculine divine divinity, but the but and then straight afterwards start talking about con- consciousness and formless awareness as a female deity so they, they don't really say oh, okay right well consciousness is god and the universe form and matter is female you know yeah. they swap it round, uh, and i think really at the end of the day as a as a practitioner i think you can just go with what feels natural for you um I agree because i don't think uh these things are intrinsically gendered you know in in uh, nature no um, and, the, and the gendering of these things actually can be really loaded and really off-putting and one of the things that I've um, started to understand over recent years is the ways in which language has kind of led me astray from my own exploration and has sort of held me back rather than helped me to to realize things and one example of that is uh, is the word consciousness it, itself Mm. which I found really uh, confusing and, in, in, uh, and sort of mixed up with, uh, with localised awareness, albeit that, you know, these things might have permeable boundaries. And, you know, it, it's, I would just invite people to play as fast and loose with that kind of stuff as, yeah. as they feel that they want to. But it, yeah, very, very similar, purpose. very similar to you, uh, that, consciousness is a third person term it's an it but consciousness is also our first person experience it as our own absolute subjectivity um and also exists in the second person space you know you and i are two localized consciousness is <laughs> interacting you know so it's we we don't in english we don't really have a very good first person word for consciousness you know you might god might be the nearest thing we've got to that like yeah um in the sense of you might sit in meditation and and, you know i not ralph cree but well (laughs) ralph cree plus every other sentient creature you know i am god in this moment you know that would be a first person thing but it's um I, i so agree with you language is really tricky and if all you if you always using third person language awareness and again this is this is another thing that uh, that's very prominent in the uh, the neo advaita thing is to talk in the third person awareness um consciousness and if if you're only ever talking in the third person it's an it it's out there it's it's very difficult to make that jump inside yourself and then also to have a relationship with intelligence you know that that is again intelligence another third person term you know um so so i i interrupted you were gonna go on to say some more i think 
No, no, I'd, I'd, oh, okay. I'd completed on that, but I agree that sort of that tendency for near advitants to use that third person. I find that really, um, well, I don't want to critique somebody else's, yeah, uh, yeah. It, 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 but I, I find it very contrived and unreal and my, my, my personal, and I understand why they, why they do that in order to try and, you know, trigger that shift and, and hold up a, a dimension of awareness that perhaps isn't our habitual uh, way of, uh, of perceiving and interacting, but certainly my own um, orientation is sort of, it's just radical authenticity. And I, you know, to, to me, they, those techniques feel like games and I just have to always come back to my own experience. That, that's been my only um, compass in this work. One of the things that I was thinking of, and this was, goes back to something you were saying about how to have a relationship with the mystery. You know, we, we live in uh, other, uh, well, my therapist has this word, which I love, the mysterium. You know, we, we live in the mysterium. And um, again, another third person term. <laughs> it's, uh, but now how to have a relationship with this mystery. So mystery... So I, the reason why I was thinking about this is, so we at home, we've recently got a VR headset, virtual reality headset, and we all use operating systems and stuff. And my kids have got into gaming on a PlayStation and things. So I've, I've been thinking a lot about interface, the, the, interf the user interface being key. So the internet, for example, has existed for a long time, since the 60s and 70s, but it was only in the 90s when an actual user-friendly interface was created with Windows and these operating systems that, and Internet Explorer and um, where you could actually access the data. So the, you, could, you could unleash the potential of all the data to become information that, that you get this flow of information through the interface you're using. Um, and that the, the mystery of life is kind of like this massive sea of data and information that's out there. And you can kind of contemplate that or be in relationship with, with that uh, and feel like getting on your knees and, and bowing. It just like, whoa. But then there's something special, I think, which happens where you with these archetypal forms or deities, they become like clusters of symbols that become an interface, an intelligible interface where you can interact with the mystery um, in a way that we're kind of designed biologically and through our, you know, the history of being mammals and all that. There's, there's, there's ways of conceiving of the mystery of life in a way that facilitate this flow of information and if you were to think about it in archetypal terms it's like if you think about your highest aspirations what you might call your higher self or those kind of things can be a bit disjointed and amorphous you know all over the place but you can tie all of that together into this neat package of a deity and in the tantric 
traditions of um, Tibetan Buddhism and Hinduism, the deities have these ritual ornaments and objects they have and special clothing. And they're all symbols which are there to give this complete picture um, and this present this, 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 this user interface with reality that does that, does that, does that make, is that, do, am I mad for thinking this way? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, so I guess some, some people might think about deities as being um, symbolic, you know, symbolizing certain frequencies of energy or the, the things that have been invested in those particular um, deities over time. I don't tend to experience them in that way, you know, I'm, I, nor do I, do I really embark upon the sort of intellectual task of trying to unpack and decide exactly what these things are, you know, they could be sort of seams of energy, so, you know, they could actually be the force of creation and destruction, but the human mind is you know, creating a, a way that that might actually um, look and manifest in a deity or, you know, similar to human form. It could be that these deities are as real, you know, as, as you and I, and to the extent that, it, that any of us are, are, are real. But I think that, you know, we can certainly uh, connect and engage with them and there is a way to uh, to be in relationship with them, even with the understanding that uh, that really all of this is uh, is non-separate, you know, and similar to the sort of the wave rising out of the ocean and being received back into the ocean as it sort of crashes back in. That that we are sort of discernible. We are individualized uh, human beings. We're individualized perspectives in consciousness living a human individual separate life that enables us to connect and relate with one another as it does it enable us to connect with different parts or different forms and the diversity and multiplicity but at the same time living that paradox that we are living in the mystery we are living as the mystery we we are the mystery and really you can't take any part of that out <laughs> no, and put it somewhere else you know this the whole of uh of being in in that respect is uh is only and, and is unified one of the things i like about the again going back to the tantric practices of tibetan buddhism indian hinduism and stuff that the 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 deity practices you sort of start by visualizing the deity in front of you um and as an aside one of the things about visualization is again the word makes us think of eyes seeing things but visualization could could be a kinesthetic feeling it could be an auditory you might hear you know depending on what type of person you are um you might be a very visual person you might be a very kinesthetic person um you know so i i'm not that visual a person i i like to i tend to feel a presence um outside of myself but you you sort of have this second person relationship uh in this moment of, of prayer and practice but then you finish that session of prayer by absorbing the deity into yourself and then resting in that union um, yeah and that, 
that's a really I love the fact that they do those two steps in it. Um, and because the kind of Christian prayer I was brought up with is very much, you know, you it would be blasphemous to take Jesus into your own heart, for example, you know, or or for God or Mary uh, to to dissolve into your body and you become Mary. Yeah. Um, Although Jesus actually took his heart from his body and offered it to the world. But I, I really like what you said about that practice. And I haven't experienced this myself, but talking to other people that, that do um, practices with deities, one of the, the things that, uh, that, that people have, have, have explained to me is that, you know, at some point while working with a deity, actually quite spontaneously, it's felt that that deity is actually that they've become that deity, and they've and they have all kinds of, you know, really sort of a, a quite extreme um, experiences of actually existing as that de deity. These incredibly, you know, uh, rich and, uh, and and raw. Uh, depictions and you know actually sort of to becoming themselves that uh, that scene it's like a process of digestion at first you have the third person uh, you might hear a teaching or read a book or receive a lesson about this practice or this deity or you're you're initiated you receive an initiation which is kind of a third person exposure just then you enter into a second person relationship with the deity and also the teachers who are delivering this information. And then the final step is this first person where you become that. And it's like ah. this metabolizing experience. Um, I love it. So I'd, I'd misunderstood when you were talking about the first, second and third. I thought you were talking about the, um, the consciousness manifesting and then the unity, the sort of the Trinity that you laid out at the beginning of the call. Oh, the, thir the third person being the Trinity. Yeah. yeah. Um, the well, in, in the Trinity, I suppose the third person aspect of the Trinity might be the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah. Would it say so that there's, I think um, ag agnosticism is a really important sort of stance to have there's an epistemic humility in that and so when we just to go back so i'm quite keen to talk to approach this subject in a way that makes sense for i mean this might be an impossible task but makes sense for people with a traditional orientation a modernist orientation and a postmodern orientation so that would be so you know i i I feel that I can talk genuinely with someone who is religious in the traditional sense and actually talk about this subject in a way where we both, I'm not saying, no, 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 it's not really divine and there's no such thing as gods and goddesses and stuff. Um, but at the same time, I can then talk to somebody who's a scientist and they might be a psychologist and we can talk about consciousness and, and archetypes and that kind of thing and then you know to talk to people of this more postmodern worldview where 
you know, again, archetypes and Jung and, um, you know, uh, some of the multicultural stuff, the shamanic things. And <clears throat> I th that's one of the things I feel is, is, is an important thing for us to come to terms with now is that there are these different ways of approaching this subject. And it's not like one of them's right and the others are wrong. They, they're, they're, they're very different ways of doing it. And when things go wrong is when you start to take your, that particular worldview or your own worldview very seriously, like it's concrete. And, you, and you, you know that that's the way it is. It's like, right, well, I understand this now. Um, this is the way it is. Um, so I, I think that's really important. And then, you know, if you've got that kind of agnosticism towards what this is about, whether deities are actually archetypal forms in our deep psyche or whether they are intelligences that exist out there in the, the world and in nature, that doesn't become the important part. The, yeah. the important part is that you have a relationship. Um, and so sometimes I, I ask questions, um, so say, you know, recently I kind of went through one of these, I need a cosmic mummy type <laughs> meditation sessions. And I was like, you know, I was like, well, what, you know, I just, this question came out. So what's, why is there suffering and pain and death? You know, I was like, what, I'm really, really down about this, like bummed out. So like, what's all this about? And just the, I just asked that question and, the, and, and an answer came back was death and suffering are not what you think they are. You, nobody knows what, nobody knows anything about death. Um, and, you know, like what happens after you die or the subjective experience of dying is a kind of black box for us. It's, you know, it's inaccessible. Um, and, you know, why is there suffering? Well, if you let go of trying to understand it or run away from that feeling, the, the kind of message I was getting back was, um, you know, it's, don't think you know what this is about. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, I was being asked to just trust life that there is i don't know well just that really um so that uh, the reason why i bring that up was that it was an example of i asked a question and i got an answer back that was actually helpful um in, in that moment and i wasn't i didn't care where that answer came from it was you know the fact that i was able to have this relationship with the intelligence of life or my own imagination or you know that it was that was the, the the important thing there yeah i'm so i'm so glad you said that ralph because i think it's such an important piece because you know that that sort of certainty and you know is there reincarnation what's life after what kind of life is there after death you know is a deity a real form or is it a symbol you know that's not what we're trying to i don't for me, that's not what we're trying to cultivate. And when I hear people talking with certainty about those things or about 
anything really you know for me that's something actually to to fear and where we need to what we need to come back to always is just for me our openness to live the mystery our openness to to live the paradox of being and to to cultivate greater and greater openness to what is a greater and greater willingness to simply be here as this and experience this human life and that and that to me is what the spiritual path such as it is actually is about yeah it would it make it makes you think of some of those zen sayings you know ordinary mind is the way and you know it's when you've got this open-minded approach and epistemic humility the ordinariness of of this moment it's just incredibly mysterious and awe-inspiring when you actually take off all the filters that you normally have you know when you're relating to this moment um and you know you could describe this as having a relationship with life and life being responsive you know with the kind of modernist view is that we live in a dead meaningless universe that's all random and to have a relationship with life is pointless and meaningless um you know as a result of that we've got this kind of meaning crisis that we're all living through and because i think we don't we don't have them uh, we haven't grappled properly with this question of, of meaning that uh, people are just leaping onto QAnon and conspiracy theories. And uh, again, you know, with conspiracy theories, there's always something in there, but it's taken too, it's like overblown. Um, and and I, one of the things that, that, that I, I've, so I lived through this desert of, modernity at a certain point in my life where I felt totally cut off from everything it it felt like my time out in the desert you know my 40 days in the desert although it was more like um you know years (laughs) and I was starving for some kind of relationship with life and that 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 suffering propelled me into search for it and actually I you know my search took me into uh psychedelics and I had some very, very religious experiences on psychedelics and I actually had experiences of meeting intelligences. Like the first time I did ayahuasca, I was just astonished. Um, I've been looking for spirits and deities and gods and goddesses my, you know, for years and I never, not, never really had an experience where I it was undoubtedly in that situation. But the first time I drank ayahuasca, my just jaw dropping, like, oh my god, I'm, I'm having, I'm having an experience with an intelligence that is just inconceivably uh, greater than anything I've I've ever even imagined up until this point, and the only appropriate response was um, to get on my knees really and pray, um, and. Uh, what I learned there was if I didn't do that, I got my ass kicked. <laughs> uh, you know, ayahuasca can be like that for sure. Um, but kick, kicking your ass with great love. Um, but yes, the, the, the magic is in the ordinary. 
we're not seeking the mystery anywhere other than here and in our desperate scramble of seeking and looking for the sacred and looking for connection and looking for God we're missing the fact that it is here and now you know and if we hadn't become so habituated to this ordinary life experience so that it you know it feels so ordinary um we we hardly even see it or encounter it you know this encounter here would feel as vivid as the novel ayahuasca experience yeah. and we would be on our knees now in front yeah. of one another and in front of this uh, this sacred scene that that we're a part of yeah and that's that's where the practice of remembering comes in you know which is key to so many religious traditions of just remembering that you are living that right now and yeah. i think one of the things about psychedelics and things like that is they they take off these filters that have habituation that we have an automation and suddenly we're seeing everything as if for the first time and we're like oh my god this is just yeah nothing's you know you know sometimes nothing's different but it's just the way you're looking at it and yeah. when we when i was at school we we all got into this thing where we would make each other faint you sort of hyperventilate and stand up some presses into your solar plexus and we, when you you do that you faint when you come round again you know nothing at all and and it's like blotting paper absorbing ink so just the most fundamental things like oh i'm a person that's a face this is a room i'm alive I have a history you just you feel it all just bleeding back in and it's just absolutely astonishing and when you i wouldn't recommend doing this and i have heard try people, this at home, i have heard people have died from doing it so you know, uh, don't don't do this um unless you know you're, you're you will be risking something um but when you do it to somebody else when you see i remember doing it to my brother and seeing him come round, just the look of astonishment on his face i'll never forget it because I know what that looks like from the outside, but also from the inside, you know, just going back to this loss of connection with the divine. A lot of saints who, who are people we've say Mother Teresa is an example. We, while she was alive, everybody assumed she was sort of plugged into the, the mainframe, all that, you know, this the divine mainframe, the whole time relationship with Jesus and God, you know, really alive and ongoing. And then, after her death, some of the letters she'd sent to her friends were published, and she was saying how she'd lived for decades, like literally decades, with no feeling of connection with Jesus and God and all that stuff. Yet at the same time, had faith enough to just keep on this path, you know, that yeah. she was living. And so I think, you know, sometimes in our own practice, we can feel like when we lose that sense of connection and relationship with divinity, deities, that we're doing it wrong. Um, and I think, we, you know, she's not the only saint to have had this experience. Um, you know, I think of some of the, the beautiful Sufi poems that are so much about the yearning and for the, for the, 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 the divine and the, the deity um, and this 
the sort of sweetness of this panging uh, pangs of longing um, that they have and then the, when the un, the reunion happens you know the kind of excitement of that and the the freshness and the newness of it every time and then you know this kind of breathing of l losing finding losing finding forgetting remembering that it's slightly agonizing yeah um well not slightly agonizing it depends how you know seriously you take this stuff for some people it is just excruciatingly it's the heart of the the existential questions of their life you know yeah. um but you know when you've when you've lost it it's quite easy to think right that's it it's all over you know i've screwed it all up but i think that's where faith in the path or a path or just faith in itself is really useful to just keep going and it reminds me of another zen saying a student went up to some zen master and said you know what's it all about and the answer was just keep going yeah um what else can we do yeah well uh, yeah so there's definitely been you know this is something i fall for all the time you know it's it, i go through one of these desert periods or a plateau period with my practice where things just are not working and I think there's there's something wrong here because it's not working how I expect yeah. it to work but then that is falling back into this thing of me wanting to be some all-powerful magician sorcerer that can just make reality bend to my will and the actual much more juicy relationship to have is one with divinity on its on her or his own terms where you know there's this learning process of the separation and finding and the ever-increasing intimacy that that yeah. creates and nothing makes the heart fonder than absence you know so yeah um, i think that's a really experiences like that. yeah i think that's a really really important piece you know as i remember as a child you know i probably wouldn't have um have articulated it as a yearning for divine for the divine but you know, on long journeys, you know, I used to sometimes feel like flinging myself out of the car window and just burying myself in the in the grass verges. That I and it was that sort of that that strong urge just for communion, just to for connection. A you know what I might now say is a, a sort of yearning for the beloved, or however you might put that in more mystical or religious language, but. You know what we're what we're seeking in the end is not an experience, and there are times through prayer and practice that those things can be very experiential, and that's very rewarding. It's validating. You feel like something is happening that God has has noticed me, and you know here I am, aren't I doing so well? And I must be highly evolved because I'm having these incredible experiences. And then you can you can go through phases and often some of that stuff happens early on in practice and you can sort of you, you the honeymoon period the honeymoon period <laughs> and then you can have literally years of that of a sort of a barren absence of experience and at some point in my own journey you know like having spent probably two decades trying to sort of tease apart these dimensions of consciousness and matter you know it just collapsed back in on itself in a sort of radical non-separateness that you know that's 
spun me into this place of, of wondering, you know, what has this work actually been about? Yeah. You yeah. know, I felt like I was right back at the beginning. What, mm. what actually have I been, what is this? What have I been doing here? You know, right back at the, at the beginning of, of nothing. And, you know, in, in the end, you know, we're not trying to, to get to a, a place of experience. We're not trying to get anywhere. Our, all we all we can do is to be is to exist is to be open is to flow as best we can with this experience of being human to feel the pain to feel the suffering the suffering of you know the 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 sorrow and the sweetness of our world and the suffering of the boredom you know the the reality of our of our of our time here where, where things aren't happening and all we can do is continue to be and you know that to me is what faith is and you know faith is sort is central to my life and my practice I have faith if I have nothing else but it's not faith in Jesus or in Mary or in Shiva Shakti Kali it's just it's just the faith faith in being the faith to carry on that's that's all we can that's all we can do i think that relates to you know practice is really important always being a student is really important and that's when when people think they've got it or they're enlightened or they're now a teacher and they know everything and they're not a student anymore you lose that faith in the path it's like you don't have to have faith in anything anymore because everything you need is is in you and you know it all and uh, and that's it you know and, and there's a kind of death in that losing the ever deepening um and uh, ever unfolding yeah that's so right i'm coming to that place of thinking you know that's it i'm fully enlightened you know i i know it all now that that really is a a death that's kind of a, a signing off <laughs> in some ways it's feeling like you've arrived and we can't arrive anywhere because all we all we can be is here and now and there, and I don't think there is any destination there is no final awakening there's a spectrum of experience and along the way you'll have shifts and awakenings and realizations and you know times of uh, of dormancy and you know times of great excitement and, and engagement in, in practice but you know I, I think we're all just part of this uh this continuum of uh of being oh there, I've, there's one thing you know maybe this might be the last thing i i bring up is you know so you and i have got quite a history in uh, in interest in non-duality and you know even though we've been quite critical of neo-advaita it's been a big part of both of our journeys um that there's something very very potent about duality something very true important powerful um and thinking of um you know opposites create this energy between them and uh that's why you know it's sometimes the traditions of sort of gendered f- uh, awareness and 
matter or something like that that they're these these two and they create this energy in this sexual union between between the two and if you collapse everything into oneness um you lose that dynamism that's created by polarities so um in one of the things that i see becoming much more popular out there in culture is moving beyond either or thinking and into both and yes and so you know the either or version of it is well it's either oneness or it's or it's twoness or multiplicity but the both and approach is to say well yeah oneness is absolutely it's true and so's the twoness and the multiplicity and that you you don't you you don't have to choose one or the other they more more than one thing can be true at the same time and again you know it's paradox and and all of that sort of thing um and so in my prayer practice i really really love this feeling of dynamism in this relationship the otherness me in relationship to an to an other and sometimes you know i get very very powerful sensations in my body from that um and also surprising in so sometimes when i'm in a more conversational prayer i'm surprising information comes my way when i ask questions about things um and that's interesting too you know whereas if there's nothing outside of yourself you might might not be surprised by anything that happens you know because there isn't that otherness yeah. so I, I don't know if you got anything to say about but oh, i mean would it and also this with digital things you've got ones and zeros and that fundamental relationship between the one and the zero can give rise to the most enormously uh, varied display so you know every all the digital content we interact with is is relationships of duality yeah um and there are some pretty far out theories which i find totally fascinating but at the end of the day i haven't got a damn idea but thinking of jude curvan with when she talks about the the holographic nature of reality and um that we kind of live in a virtual reality that's pixelated at the Planck scale. <laughs> yeah, and within the information is the sort of um, the basis, the, the most fundamental elementary aspects of nature. Uh, and there are some people talking about finding code, computer code written into, uh, you know, the physical reality. And, you know, it's, there's some pretty far out stuff there, but reason why I bring all of this up is that the, the the potential that's that's created when you when you have two things in relationship that it, it gives right it can give rise to so much richness and if you do if you are only doing the practice where you are it you've kind of cut yourself off from all of that dynamism yeah it's the only place that dynamism can exist. It's the only place where that anything can exist uh, in relationship and in duality. And 
I don't see that as being a, at all opposed to actually to uh, to the unity, to the onlyness of being. You know, I I have realized the onlyness of being, and I live the duality of being, and I embrace it. <laughs> and I and I love it. I love the world and I and I love life and I try to open my heart amidst all of its joy and all of its and all of its brokenness you know and, and I'm uh, a parent a late parent I was 40 when I had my um, son and it was said to me that you know when somebody said that when you have a child you see your own heart walking around in somebody else's mm, body absolutely. you know and I and I and I feel that and I feel that I feel that deeply and I want to honour that in this life. I want to feel everything as deeply as I possibly can. And sometimes you do need to put the filters up because we are vulnerable and we don't want to expose ourselves to more suffering than is necessary. But, you know, I, it, it's my life's work to, to begin to, to open and to open my heart more and more. And, I, and I'm glad at the end here that we've brought the conversation back around to to practice and prayer uh, which which is where we started and a, and a really nice way I think to complete yeah well um when I had children I did I started to think about this fractal thing about consciousness so the way I feel towards my own children is there a correlation between say and a, you know a I can hear the voice in my head going, oh, you're anthropomorphizing nature, cardinal sin, you know. But <laughs> that, you know, is there a relationship between an intelligence, we might call it mother nature or something, does, does the intelligence of mother nature feel that way about us? Is that repeated in the way that we feel about our children, you know, and care that much about us you know people yeah. really scoff uh where you know atheists and people when when you say something like oh does it does it make your life better knowing that jesus loves you or something you know they kind of <clears throat> laugh at people that feel that way um i think at the end of the day the joke's on them because we all know through the scientific data that people that have a religious orientation live longer <laughs> and are more happy um, <laughs> you know so there's, there's I mean, uh, you know I, I won't open up this whole subject because we're, we're at the end here but you know there there is an argument that there's an evolutionary advantage to having religious faith and a relationship with life as a living entity um that people who have and societies that have had that orientation have been more successful um, yeah. so you know that's a whole nother topic and, and it's also another reason to look at that data as a sort of modernist atheist scientifically orientated person to say well how could i look at that evidence there and how could i have a relation have a relationship with nature all my life which feels authentic as an atheist but is making use of that evolutionary uh disposition towards it you know yeah 
Religion is very easy to diminish, you know, as you said earlier with the fairies, when you've got an axe to grind with it, it's very easy to take a sort of narrow perspective on it and, you know, make it appear ridiculous. But you know, so what's interesting to me is that some of the people that I know who identify as atheists and have a, you know, that kind of sort of intellectual, fabulous intellectual rigour, you know, when you scratch under the surface, they're some of the most spiritual people you could ever encounter. You know, I have this friend who lives in Ireland who's an atheist, but, you know, you'll see her doing essentially sort of ritual practice and, <laughs> you know, feeling very connected to the to the fairy folk and to everything that goes on around. Mm. I mean, a case in point, Richard Dawkins. Yeah. You know, he's made his whole life a critique of religion. But if you read you know, one of his what, blind watchmaker, for example, you know, you will see the incredible divine appreciation that he has for life and, and for, the, for the mystery of being. Yeah, great, great devotion um, to the big questions, you know, about existence, but maybe too hasty to draw conclusions, you know, from it, perhaps. Um, yeah yeah there's a Rupert Sheldrake wrote a really good book called The Science Delusion which is a kind of an answer to Richard Dawkins science uh, God Delusion book <laughs> they're pointing out some of the the assumptions that science is founded upon you know but never makes explicit or never admits that you know there are those assumptions there yeah um, yeah well you know this is this is an uh, an ongoing exploration for me in my own practice, and I feel I feel really really happy to have started this practice over the last few years. You know, and I, and it and it feels quite new, uh, sweet, and interesting, um, and you know, I look forward to developing this through the rest of my life, you know, it's, um, and uh, I, I'm always on the lookout for conversations out there in the culture, which are trying to address this topic in a way that is relevant now, you know, to this moment now, and that young people can relate to. I mean, I, I'm 42. So I'm kind of, in the middle of yeah, I'm not a young person but I'm not an old person and it's, I'm kind of thinking about my children and the world they're going to grow up into and yeah you know I think they're going to spend that time in the desert of meaninglessness and you know in feeling insignificant and worrying about life and all that that's just sort of inevitable phase but you know really I want to have investigated this enough to help them navigate their way to meaning on the other side of that period of you know the desert um and i've got you know friends that didn't make it out of that and um uh, some friends that have committed suicide and stuff so mm. it, it is a matter of it's very important subjects it's a matter of life and death literally yeah um, and uh finding meaning is the key 
Um, so, yeah. Well, thanks, Lynn. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for yeah. inviting me into such a rich conversation. And I look forward to listening again and contemplating some of the things that you've said. If, if people wanted to find out more about what you do, um, or maybe it might not even be things that you do or things that you care about or places that this people might go to that were helpful, you know, in relation to this subject, you know, what would you say? Yeah. So you've asked me to send you a little profile and I'll, I'll pop some contact details in there. I'm always very uh, happy and privileged to be in touch with others that are um, following a, a similar path and have a similar orientation. I also uh, run a Facebook page called Waking Down in Mutuality uh, Europe and UK. So people could, uh, it's not a very active Facebook group, that's, but that's one way that people could uh, get in touch with me if they'd like to cool yeah and i i definitely vouch for waking down mutuality i think it's brilliant and uh you know shout out to samuel bonder and uh linda bonder lovely couple of people and um i've had the privilege of working with them too uh at a distance yeah. you've actually been out to their home a few times and you know that's really special uh -huh. maybe when uh covid's over i might do the same <laughs> yeah so big shout out to Sandra, samuel and uh, linda mm. real uh, pioneers of the heart i made all the music that i use in my podcasts if you'd like to hear more of my music please visit soundcloud and check out my profile ralph cree <laughs>